0: Hello and welcome to the Agronovations Podcast, all things related and debated in agriculture. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. Today I will be playing part two of my interview with Adrian Bowyer of the Rip Rap Machine Project. So if you liked part one of that interview, then uh, part two is just as interesting. Let's jump right into this interview here. I've got some uh, more news for the podcast uh, at the tail end of this, but. Uh, First let's wrap up our interview with Adrian Bauer of the Rip Machine Project. I, I wanna take it to more of a ten thousand foot view now. Yeah. Um you know what are some of the maybe the broader the broader uh, strokes here. Um mm-hmm. let's talk about well, everybody knows what's going on now in terms of uh it certainly feels like the twentieth century uh economy is collapsing. Um, nobody's quite sure what's going to happen. The end of 2008 was fairly turbulent, and 2009 is looking to be more so. Um, yes. But let's talk yep. about, let's talk about this a little bit in the context of distributed fabrication. Uh, in what yeah. ways will this fill the void being left by the collapse of the 20th century economy?
1: Uh, well, I, I have to say, though, the, as you say, the collapse of the twentieth-century economy is something we've all been uh, fairly intimately concerned with and seen in the in the last six or eight months or so, or perhaps a little bit longer. It's collapsed before and it's come back. Uh, we have to remember that um, this is not a this is not a novel or a new uh, uh, event. It's something that's happened periodically in history, and there's no reason to suppose that that periodicity won't continue into the future. However, having said that. Um, it's certainly the case that the ability for people to manufacture many of the objects that they normally buy for themselves does, if it becomes very widespread, radically alter the way that the economics of, of making and distributing stuff works. Um, first of all, consider what it does to transport. Um, at the moment, to take an example of something I mentioned a few minutes ago, imagine going to buy a door hook or a coat hook, uh, for hanging a coat on the back of a door, uh, what you do is you go to the store and you and you buy one, and it comes in a little plastic packet. So you've had to drive to the store and back, but of course the coat hook has had to be conveyed from the coat hook fa- factory on a truck to the store and the plastic to make the coat hook had to be conveyed uh, from wherever the plastic was manufactured to the factory and then the oil to make the plastic had to be conveyed from the oil well through an oil refinery and heaven is what else. So you can see an awful lot of transport goes on in the manufacture of even the simplest object like a coat hook. If you can supply the plastic directly to uh, the end user and have the user make the coat hook for themselves, suddenly an enormous percentage of that transport goes away. And the requirement for all those trucks and ships and so on going all over the place, moving stuff about, starts to disappear. And just as in this country, for example, our our post office uh, is in dire financial straits because nobody sends letters anymore, uh, you can see the whole of the world's uh, uh, logistics and material moving industry uh, becoming quite seriously uh, in trouble uh, when people start to make things themselves and make things just by moving data around. Uh, that's one possible consequence of the widespread uptake of this technology. And then there are, of course, the companies that do the manufacturing. Um, we're still going to need raw materials, so I'll come to that in a minute, and how we might bypass the, the chemical industry, and in particular the oil industry, for, for raw materials. Um, but there's the manufacturing companies that make things like uh, uh, um, Oh, I don't know that the bodies of a pen or, or into which you put the, the, the works and, and the, the, the ink and so on. Um, the companies that make things like that, uh, plugs and sockets to go on the walls, all those sorts of things, um, again start to become redundant if people can simply download them and print them for themselves. And so you start to see large chunks of manufacturing industry. Um, Perhaps not having the market that they used to have because people have no interest in in buying buying goods anymore because they can make them. Um, when I was a child, um, my parents and, and most of the adults whom I knew uh, would go to a little local print shop and get some headed note paper printed so they could write letters to their friends and so on. And this is a perfectly everyday occurrence. Now all those little print shops have disappeared and nobody gets headed note paper printed anymore because we're all our own printing works. Um, the same thing will happen uh, to um, most other manufactured goods uh, if uh, this technology is successful. At the moment, we're not only all our own printing, printing works, we're also all our own photographic laboratory, and we're all our own CD pressing plant. Uh, those things don't, by and large, get done anymore. We do them all using our computers. If we can have our computers manufacture three-dimensional objects as opposed to those essentially two-dimensional things, um, then suddenly a whole load of other industries start to become redundant as well. Uh, I mentioned that uh, you might be able to avoid the necessity of going to conventional suppliers for the raw materials of the machine. Um, The first copy machine that we made back in May 2008, which we talked about a little while ago, uh, that copy machine was made in a plastic called polylactic acid and that plastic is very interesting because it's a plastic that anybody can make themselves if they are reasonably diligent and careful because it has some tricky steps but it's plastic anybody can make for themselves from starch now if you've got a plastic that can be made from starch and you can grow a starch crop if you've got a few tens of square meters of land then suddenly you're independent of the chemicals industry for your raw materials for building things out of and so we've got the possibility that people will not only be able to manufacture objects themselves, but they'll be able to make their own raw materials themselves. Furthermore, polylactic acid is biodegradable. So once you've made objects out of polylactic acid, when they break, um, if you throw them into a compost heap, uh, which has to be a proper uh, high-temperature composting heap, not just a little mound in the garden, uh, but nonetheless, you throw them into a proper compost heap, um, six months later, they're ready to dig back into a crop. And you've got an entirely local recycling route for everything that's redundant or breaks or, or whatever, with no need for um, any involvement from industry or transport at all. And so, in the ultimate analysis, you can envis- envisage a word oh, sorry, envisage a world in which the word manufacturing industry does no longer have any application. Um, everybody's making everything for themselves, including the materials with which to do the making.
0: Yeah, and I'd like to just. Uh Qualify something that you said, that uh, it it is true that over the long term we do have these uh, downturns in economic cycles, but uh, for the very dramatic and serious downturns, what emerges at the other end uh, doesn't necessarily resemble exactly what things were like before that collapse. Yes,
1: you're absolutely right. They, they 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 induce changes. There's there's no question. Uh, the world in in 19, uh, ignoring the rise of Nazism for the moment, the world, uh, just looking at the world at a broad, in the broader sense, as opposed to uh, Western Europe, uh, the world in in 1937. Uh, was rather different from the world in 1927. Uh, That's certainly true after the Great Depression. Um, However, it has to be said that viewed from our particular perspective in history, if we look at 1927 and 1937, they look rather similar to us and our world looks very much more different uh, to either of them. Um, But uh, but you're right. Uh, These great financial disasters, which seem to be an inherent Feature of uh, the economic system that we have in the world, uh, these periodic financial disasters do engender enormous um, changes in uh, in what we might call the details, but the very important details. A good example is is the is the motor industry, uh, as we all know, both certainly in 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 the UK and also in the US, uh, manufacturers of of large uh, petrol hungry cars uh, are in great deal of difficulty uh, because nobody's buying them anymore. Um, And suddenly we're discovering that people who make small cars and in particular people who make electric vehicles can see a little bit of an opportunity opening up for them. And when the economy starts to take off again, maybe those small companies building uh, zero emission vehicles will find that they've got a bit of a head start over the dinosaurs which uh, preceded them and so that will be a particularly significant uh, uh, consequence of, of this particular downturn if that does turn out to be the case. It may not of course but if it does that will be one.
0: Of course as we all know uh, our times are extremely complex and I want to ask you how you believe distributed fabrication can help us to confront some of the other pressing issues of our time like uh, ecosystem collapse, uh, peak oil and climate change.
1: Uh, Well, uh, I've already uh, uh, sort of hinted at one or two of them. Um, If we can organize uh, distributed manufacturing with individuals or small collectives making almost everything they need for themselves, um, but without sacrificing the high technology world that we've already got. In other words, we want people not just to be able to make things like wicker baskets and so on, which, of course, anybody could make for themselves at the moment, but, be able, but to also to be able to make their own computers, to make their own uh, telecommunication systems and, and the rest. Um, uh, if we can do that, then um, certainly, uh, and furthermore, if we can do it by using uh, renewable and recyclable resources, which become far more attractive at the local level, because by definition, a renewable and a recyclable resource becomes the resource that you want to have uh, when you're doing it for yourself, um, you don't have economies of scale which might move you towards getting some central supplier for all your polymer or whatever by definition if you're, if you don't, uh, if you, if you're making things for yourself. Then um, there's a possibility that we'll have a, a world in which our manufacturing industry is much closer to the way biology works as opposed to what we might call 19th and early 20th century engineering. Um, you've got a system which uses Apple its own waste material uh, it uses comparatively little energy Though, having said that, uh rep-rap machine is not particularly energy efficient in the way it manufactures items. Um, if you compare it, for example, with injection molding, which is the conventional way to make plastic objects, it actually uses rather more energy per item than injection molding. On the other hand, the machine itself is very low power. It, it works at about 50 watts. Um, what that means, and indeed we've already tried this, uh, is that you can run a single machine off uh, a, a square meter or so of silicon solar cells. Uh, So you at least have the possibility of having complete autonomy and energy for running the machine as well. And of course once you go down that path, um, the fact that it's not particularly energy efficient compared to centralized manufacturing uh, ceases to be such a significant matter from the ecological standpoint because you're using renewables as your source of energy. Um, And you mentioned peak oil. if you can get away from oil as your source of raw material, and if you can get away from oil as your source of energy for the machine, uh, then you can wave as peak oil goes by and uh, smile into the future. Uh, this is, of course, a rather rosy picture of the future. Um, it does have some negative aspects. I, I mentioned that um, one of the things we don't allow onto our library website of objects that can be made uh, weapons. Weapons. Um, once people can make things for themselves there's no control over what people can make. Um, It turns out that rapid prototyping machines are not particularly well suited to building weapon systems anyway uh, so that's rather fortunate but nonetheless people will find Good ways to do bad things and nasty things with these systems, I'm sure. That's human nature and it's unstoppable just as people find good ways to do bad things with motor cars like rob banks with them. Uh, that doesn't stop us using motor cars, uh, the rest of us, during the normal course of events. But we do have to be aware that uh, human nature is such that not every utilization of this technology will be a beneficial one for either individuals or for society as a whole.
0: Yeah, one, one of the things that occurs to me, I wonder if anyone has come up to you and said, well, this is a revolutionary technology and and this is just terrible. I mean, it's going to destroy consumer capitalism as we know it, you know, in over the next 20 years or so. Um, one, one of the things that I've written about is kind of put this in the context of some of Karl Marx's writings. And uh, mm-hmm. anyone who's read Marx knows that uh, most of what he's written is just uh, a very detailed critique and analysis of capitalism with very little on socialism in fact but he he talks about you know the the means of production being concentrated in few hands and this Mm -hmm. is a way of actually distributing the means of production to what he referred to as the proletariat in a way that he could not have foreseen in his day and age at all
1: absolutely and uh, that's one of the first things that i thought about when i came up with the idea Um, The great problem with Marxism, of course, is that the only way he could see for distributing the means of production amongst the proletariat was to have a revolution to achieve that. And as we all know from the lessons of history, the the one thing that revolutions are brilliant at producing is dead bodies. Um, And so they're an extremely bad idea from the point of view of almost everybody concerned. Um, What we have here is a possibility... Uh, rather, like the growth of the internet itself uh, that you can have a revolution which doesn 't kill very many people if any at all, and um, which nonetheless allows that Marxist ideal of the ownership by the proletariat of the means of production to come to pass um, and so it seemed to me that uh, we had a way of sidestepping this inconvenient bloodletting that uh, accompanies every revolution when it uh, when it occurs um, and so, uh, I, I'm certainly not a revolutionary in the sense that I think that uh, uh, violence is justified for achieving almost any ends. Indeed, in m- my personal opinion, is the only justification for violence is self-defense. Um, but, um, uh, I mean, self-defense against imminent actual physical attack right now, not anticipated attacks in the future or any of that nonsense. Um, so, uh I think that, uh, given a revolutionary technology that doesn't require revolution, uh, we uh, we might well get to the point where um, we have a much more equitable society because the distinction between the ownership of uh, capital and the means of production, and that means of production, will will go away. Uh, what Marx saw was capital concentrated in a few hands, basically the factory owners, uh, the people who could afford to set up those capital plants to manufacture things, as I was saying a while ago about China and building mobile phones. Um, and uh, uh, what we're trying to do is to give everybody the ability to uh, uh, to do that sort of thing for themselves. And so the distinction between those with a great deal of capital and those that don't uh, might, well, become rather narrow. But having said all that, I very much doubt whether anybody will be manufacturing large ocean going liners using this technology in the very near future. Um, It's most suited to comparatively small objects. Um, It'll be interesting to see how it goes, uh, but uh, there are some things for which you're going to need either a collective or a good old-fashioned capitalist industrial company uh, in order to achieve them, uh, certainly for the foreseeable future.
0: Yeah, and just a, a quick point about you're saying that the machine's not all that efficient, energy efficient, um, mm-hmm. You know, let's keep in mind the machine's still a, a baby, relatively speaking. I mean, if we compared That's the true. original Edison light bulb to the light bulbs of today, you know, we would see yep. enormous gains in, in efficiency. Um, Absolutely right. Let's, let's talk about uh, some of the practical aspects of this for people. Uh, how can innovative entrepreneurs take this concept and build business models around it?
1: well uh, rather in the same way I think that people have taken the concept of free software and built business models around them if we take just to pluck a company out of the air Red Hat that uh, uh, market uh, Linux skills to, to the world um, uh, sure you can get Red Hat Linux and you you can download it free but what Red Hat do Red Hat do to make money is to sell their skill and knowledge about the system to people who need that skill and knowledge to keep them supported and to ensure that they've got regular backup and uh, uh, updates and all the rest of it and so uh, that's how I see people setting up businesses around around this technology uh, becoming skillful in some aspect or all aspects of it and selling that skill uh, to groups of people whilst the technology itself is available free and uh, as I say, fortunately, we've already got a good model for that. Um, while we're in the process of starting up, of course, there's a considerable uh, economic opportunity for people to start selling kits for the machines and uh, getting machines together to manufacture more for machines and selling those. Because uh, I mentioned that we have a, a minimum a spread of machines of 1,200, because that's the number of electronics kits we've sold so far. Um, we don't know how many there are in the world, but guess, probably about 2,000, I don't know. Uh, that leaves an awful lot of people without them. And uh, many of those people would quite like simply to just go and buy a machine. Uh, they're not so interested in putting it together for themselves. And so companies are beginning to be set up that provide that service. And that's another way, of course, to uh, organize a business model around
0: around this free technology. Now, judging by the level of interest of people online about this technology, Uh, You know, all sorts of people are interested in it and, you know, let's conclude with some practical tips for these types of people. How can they get started uh, and what pitfalls should they avoid? Right.
1: Uh, You need three skills to put one of these machines together and make it work. Uh, You need to be good at mechanical engineering, you need to be good at electronics, and you need to be good at software. Now, uh, very few people have all three skills, though quite a few more people have one of those skills, of course. So what we found is that the best way for people to get started working with RETRAP uh, is to form a small club or community, a group of perhaps four or five people, who can get together and put a machine together, because that way you get a software person and a, a mechanics person and an electronics person, and though they know a little bit about each other's areas, uh, they can all contribute their own particular skill and and put the thing together. Having said that, there are quite a few people out there in the world who do have all the requisite skills just in, in one brain themselves, if you see what I mean, Um <clears throat> and they've perfectly successfully put machines together. Um, y- you do have to be uh, reasonably technically competent to do it for this first generation machine. It's it's a bit like when personal computers were being started back in the late 70s and early 80s, and people were building their own computers using microprocessors for themselves. Um, you had to have a and I, I was—I'm so horribly old that I was one of those that did that. And I remember at the time you had to have this combination of electronics knowledge and software knowledge, um, and a little bit of mechanical knowledge as well for some of the connections and so on. Um, and uh, that's a, a skill set that many people have. But it's a skill set which, quite conveniently for most other people, can be organised uh, with a little bit of collaboration and, uh, and as I say, forming a little loose, loose knit club of. of four or five individuals who are geographically close to each other and who can uh, get together and and put the machine together and swap each other's skills, as it were.
0: Now, how about uh, pitfalls? What are some of the common mistakes that people make that you would caution them against? Um,
1: Trying to do it too quickly... Uh, it, it it takes a little time to get your head round it and to put the machine together and to adjust it so it'll work reliably. It's that adjustment process that requires a certain amount of thought and intuition. Uh, though we do have lots of hints on the web, of course, about doing that. Um, uh, that that's one of the things. Other um, pitfalls. Um, Trying to debug the machine as a whole as opposed to trying to debug its parts before you put them together. One of the things we deliberately did when we designed the machine was to design it so that you could build it uh, in units and test each unit on its own and only when they were all working uh, then put them together. And that's a very successful strategy because, of course, uh, once you've got a unit tested and working, you can then be reasonably confident it's going to work when you put it into the machine. And that individual testing is comparatively straightforward because the individual units, particularly the individual electronic boards, for example, are relatively straightforward, each each one on its own. But we have had some people, for example, who've built machines, uh, and they've had to do it in a hurry because they had some deadline or whatever. Um, And so they tried to put the whole machine together and then get it all working as it were in one go. And that has led them to an enormous amount of debugging effort, uh, which simply wouldn't have been necessary had they done it uh, in in divided up chunks. And um, so that's certainly a pitfall to avoid, I think.
0: And of course, here's the, you know, the the beauty of actually putting one of these together is you become sort of one of the few, I mean, there are maybe a a few thousand or a few hundred people who are working with this. But like you said, that's relatively small uh, compared to how many people are actually out there. So you become a pioneer in this in terms of, you know, developing that uh, early knowledge base to be able to work with this now and into the future.
1: That's absolutely true, um, and indeed, uh, one of the things we've discovered is that many people working with the project and and on the project uh, are getting all sorts of interest from commercial companies who are interested in uh, hiring them as consultants to uh,
0: help that company get up to speed with the same technology. Now, what one final question for you before we finish up here? Uh, tell us yep. what the shortest path to get the machine in as many hands as possible is. Um
1: the shortest path um i think it's it there is no one path <laughs> that, that sounds like a philosophical statement but uh, or possibly even a metaphysical one um but um uh, it's um it, there are two things i think uh, One is via the roots of these various companies that are setting themselves up to uh, market kits. Uh, That's quite a convenient way for people to get hold of uh, bits and pieces of the machine for themselves. Um, But there are individuals who are also using their machines to make kits to give to other people. Indeed, there's a guy in Canada who's just done that, and uh, he gave away a complete kit of all the mechanical parts that the machine makes for itself in return for a case of beer. Um, So that gives you some idea that enormous expenditure isn't involved. Um, So it's a combination of those two things, I think. People starting to use the machines to make other machines for other people, plus the commercial companies that are getting in early that are selling kits to people, uh, some of them laser cut kits. Uh, Incidentally, I should say one of the advantages that the laser cut kit has is that uh, all the Parts in it are designed to be com- compatible with the rapid prototype parts. So, if you've got the laser cut machine, you can actually use it to make rapid prototype parts, and they swap in and out. They're not the same shape, but they have the same mounting points and so on. So, uh, so the, the whole thing will swap um, uh, very, very conveniently, and so. Just to answer your question, it's a combination of those two things. Uh, either find uh, someone online who's prepared to basically make your set of parts and stick them in a cardboard box and put them in the mail, uh, or go to one of the companies, and we've got a list of them on our website, of course, uh, who are marketing kits for the machine.
0: Um. Okay. Well, I'd like to thank you so much for joining us, Adrian uh, Bowyer. And this is a very interesting project, and I'm sure it's it's going to generate a lot of buzz uh, in the years to come. And uh, we wish you all the all success, all the greatest success with thank, this project.
1: Thank you very much for good wishes. It's been it's been a pleasure to talk to you. I, I've most enjoyed it. So uh, I I look forward to seeing it appear online.
0: That concludes my interview with Adrian Bowyer of the Ripwrap Machine Project. This episode and all episodes of the Agro Innovations podcast are distributed under an attribution non-commercial no derivatives license. So, if you'd like to know more about that, please visit creativecommons.org. You can find out all about that. We have some more great podcasts coming, um starting to build up a little bit of a backlog of them, so that means that I can be a little bit ahead of the curve and get these out on time. I'll be trying to publish them on Mondays from now on. I don't know how consistent I'll be able to be with that, but I will do my best. We have some collaborators, uh, namely Mike Moon of Just Coffee, who is now doing some interviews uh, for the Agro Innovations podcast. And he, I believe, is in the Midwestern United States. And so he's interviewing some uh, innovative agricultural practitioners in his region. And those podcasts will be forthcoming. If you have any comments, questions, or other things that you'd like to share, please uh, send me an email. You can get in touch with me uh, at the address podcast at agroinnovations.com. I look forward to hearing any feedback on any of these podcasts. Uh, The open source appropriate technology debate continues online on the Global Swadeshi Network also uh, on agroblogger.com, and you can check out our Twitter feed at twitter.com agronovations You can follow us along there. There's plenty going on, uh, lots of interesting projects like the RipRap Project and many others that we are keeping track of uh, and discussing online with lots of other people, so please check that out. I'd like to give a shout out to KMO on the Sea Realm podcast, which, if you haven't listened to it yet, uh, it's a great podcast dealing with some of the issues we deal with here on the Agro Innovations podcast, but also many more. I'm Frank Aragona. This is the Agro Innovations podcast. Saludos.